So we're going to start recording in three, two, one. Chad Robinson, how the... (laughs) (laughs) The Thai food is here. Modern. 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 We're prepping for a voyage. Modern. The force of an old-fashioned equals whiskey mass times bitters acceleration. Why don't you make that a double? Modern Bar Cart. What's shaking, cocktail fans? Welcome back to another episode of the Modern Bar Cart Podcast. As always, I'm your host, Eric Koslick, and today... I am super excited to share an interview with someone who is, in my humble opinion, an expert home bartender as well as a great all-around guy. I sat down and chatted with none other than Chad Robinson, who spearheads sales and distribution at Catoctin Creek Distillery in Purcellville, Virginia, which means he gets to travel all around the country talking to people about great spirits. And he's also been known to enjoy a cocktail or two. Speaking of which, before we jump into the interview here, I want to give you the opportunity to make yourself a drink. And today's featured drink is actually one that Chad talks about during the lightning round of this episode. So more to come as we discuss it then. But for now, I will tell you it's called the Diamondback after Maryland's state turtle, the Diamondback Terrapin. And it's a three to two to one ratio of rye to apple brandy to chartreuse in that order. And as you all know, I'm a huge green chartreuse fan, but this cocktail can be made with either green or yellow chartreuse, which have slightly different flavor profiles with the green being more herbal and the yellow being a little bit more honeyed with some darker spice notes. You can also play around with what type of apple brandy you use ranging from a dark, sweet American style like Laird's Applejack to maybe a drier, more refined French Calvados on the higher end. The ideal measurements of the Diamondback cocktail are going to be one and a half ounces of rye, one ounce of apple brandy, and a half ounce of chartreuse, which you're going to combine in a mixing glass with ice, stir until chilled, and then strain into a coupe glass to enjoy. It's going to have a fairly deep maybe a a bit of a sweeter flavor profile, depending on especially what type of apple brand you use. And as we're kind of moving into the autumn season, uh, this, the, the diamond back really strikes me as, as something that you can use to transition into the cooler weather, kind of get your feet wet with some of those darker cocktails. Diamondback cocktail is only one of many topics that Chad and I discussed during this episode. Our primary subject is actually the mysterious infinity bottle, which is a really cool way to extend the life of your almost finished bottles of spirits and to become a master blender in the comfort of your own home. Some of the other things we cover include Chad's book of spirit-inspired poetry entitled Gadabouts Abound, How to Break the Ice and Build Relationships in the World of Craft Spirits, The Art and Science of Blending Whiskey, Rum, Brandy, and yes, even Amari, with, of course, generous tasting notes, What to Drink When You Run into H.L. Mencken in Baltimore, and much, much more. Running into Chad at an event is always a treat for me, and it was a real blast to spend a few hours with him to record this episode, so please... Please, please enjoy my spirited conversation with Chad Robinson. Chad Robinson, how the hell are you? 
I'm doing pretty well, man. How are you doing? <laughs> I'm doing good. Uh, I was uh, excited to get the chance to sit down and talk to you. Uh, I was and I was on the way here, and I was um, I was driving. I was like, oh, it's gonna be great to check, uh, you know, catch up with Chad. And then I I realized something further. I was like, Chad's got a really nice voice, <laughs> so this is gonna be it's gonna be an even better interview because. I'm going to sound good just by association. So well, thanks for that. thanks for being on the show, man. I appreciate it. Yeah, it's my pleasure. Absolutely. Um, so what we always do first whenever we interview someone is just give them a chance to uh, give us who you are, what you do, and your background. So you want to tell us what you're up to? Absolutely. I am the National Brand Ambassador for Catoctin Creek Distillery. It's a little family-owned distillery out of Percival, Virginia um, in the foothills of the Blue Ridge Mountains in Loudoun County, Virginia. Beautiful countryside, especially we got the full foliage coming in like it is right now. Great drive. Uh, we're focusing on rye whiskey because of the great history that it has in the Mid-Atlantic region, but we're also really partial to brandy. That's my personal favorite spirit, and we do an excellent job with fruit brandies, having something that's local and tells a great story. Yeah. Yeah. I, I kind of noticed as, as we've, I've run into, especially like this year at tails, I saw you run around with some brandy. Absolutely. Um, that's my, that's my go-to. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, we'll, we'll have to talk about that brandy because brandy is something that I've been really interested in. And I know that we'll be able to talk about it in some detail a little bit later when we get to the topic of this show. So, mm-hmm. um, what do you do on a given day? So lately it's been a lot of travel. I've been going to places like uh, Detroit. Just came back from Detroit on Friday. I uh, was in Los Angeles recently. I'll be heading up to Berlin uh, in on Monday. Really? And then a whole other whirlwind schedule of travel throughout the rest of the month of October. I have this beautiful reprieve right in the beginning of this month, right before the fog of war hits and don't know what's going on anymore <laughs> yeah uh berlin so you're an international brand ambassador i mean this is, i typically get one trip a year so the international title feels a little bit a little <laughs> bit oversold if i try to go for that <laughs> okay uh, so I, I stick to national um and even that is a little bit oversold we're only in 15 states right now so only 13 of those really are my territory my responsibility Gotcha. So, uh, regional, I, I often go for as well, uh, even if that's multiple regions. But uh, I'm, I'm quite happy with no title, just being Chad from Catoctin. Yeah, that has suited me for so long. I'm happy with that as well. Assistant to the regional Chad from Catoctin. Uh, sure, executive <laughs> vice president Chad for Catoctin. <laughs> Fantastic. Uh, so a lot of travel, and what do you talk to people about when you travel? Are you sampling your stuff? Are you are you talking to restaurant people, or are you talking to more retail side of things? It is everything. So bars, uh, restaurants, stores. Uh, sometimes it's larger characters, you know, uh, like a regional buyer or someone who will be the beverage director for a whole group. Plenty of times it's the cousin of the owner of a store who is responsible for picking up new products, and he's the one who tastes, and the owner doesn't taste because he's not normally there, all those kinds of things. Uh, <laughs> it'll hit the whole range. Yeah. So, so mom and pops all the way to, uh, you know, Kempton Hotel 
um, buyers and things like that that are going to be a little bit more of the seasoned professional. Gotcha, gotcha. So you a whole range of people, and you're From you're all just over the country. Yeah, man, that's so. It, it seems like that's exciting. I, I'm sure it can also get exhausting. Um, but one of the things I appreciate about you is that you you're such a great person to get along with. And I, I mean, we met when I was first just getting into things, and you were very accepting very curious uh you came you came out and tasted when we were giving yeah you know it was a couple of couple of dudes from dc coming yeah. out and we were and uh we were trying to get scott the owner of catoctin creek to be interested in our little cocktail bitters startup and you came out you tasted them i remember uh, and you were just really really kind and really welcoming so i, I think that's you know I, I thank you for that and uh definitely great to you know be able to years later come down sit down and, and record this for sure great way to come full circle yes so what do you think if you had to pick like what your favorite thing and maybe the most challenging thing about your job as somebody who goes out to these places and interacts with all these different types of people to kind of tell the story of your product right. what, what's your favorite part about that and then maybe what's the most challenging part my favorite part is always meeting the new people uh, i'm at a point now where I mean, so many new people that is admittedly quite difficult to remember names. Uh, I'm pretty good with faces. So a lot of times, even if I don't remember someone's name, I'll see them and I can do the generic term of endearment like, hey, buddy, yeah. hey, guy, Buckaroo. hey, friend. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but thankfully, you know, most people are pretty forgiving if you don't remember their name. Every now and then you meet someone who's a little bit, <laughs> a little bit harder on you about it. But right. in general, people are glad that you at least remember something about them, at least a face. Or, you know, I'm typically pretty good about recall once I get some context. You know, remember stories and what we were talking about and all that will start to flood back on me. But me recalling it on my own, that part's hard. Uh, but it's always great to have opportunity to meet new people, understand more about how their business works, how things have been going for them, and some unique stories about what they've been going through, uh, you know, because every part of the country that I go to is slightly different. So talking about retail in Tennessee or on-premise in in the Bay Area, each of those stories are going to be so vastly different. That it's always great to kind of collect little anecdotes. That's one of the things I enjoy most about it. Uh, one of the parts that's most challenging is being a no-name brand. So when someone comes in and they're talking to me about a bullet or a redemption well those are <laughs> multi-million dollar brands with lots of marketing dollars behind them and fun names that people have heard come up for a while now for us when i go to speak to someone unfortunately <laughs> they'll have never heard of katakin creek ever before in their entire life <laughs> and it doesn't entirely help that if you're not from the region it can be a little bit challenging to discover what the pronunciation is so you you start talking about it and they stumble over the pronunciation when they're trying to ask you about it it makes them feel a little uncomfortable and then you gotta make them even more uncomfortable by talking about all these kinds of things with uh, about which they know nothing so yeah, that uh, is that is tough uh we all often get uh, confused with when when i say embitterment it kind of gets confused for Bitterman's. And so people get excited. Oh, you're with Bitterman's, which is for folks listening. It's a very large bitters brand. 
and we have to i kind of have to like put on there be like no 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 it's embitterment you know usually you're sometimes when you're talking to people uh, obviously we're in loud situations sometimes you're at a bar sometimes right. you're at a, tra- a noisy trade show right. and that can kind of put the the stress on the pronunciation and stuff so it's really interesting uh that first interaction with a brand and so how do you like when you get in a situation when somebody is like a little bit confused whether that's maybe uh i feel like you're probably dealing with like mostly professionals but right and i'm sure you've also dealt with people who are just coming in, you know people who are just uh, casual at home bartenders um right. like most of the audience of this podcast so when when you have that kind of awkward interaction like how do you how do you make it less awkward and how do you get to like the stuff that, that where you're talking about the value of your product so the awkwardness is typically going to be coming from the fact that they don't know anything about me and you know realistically I don't know anything about them so we're in this kind of sales piece and doing the presentation that's trying to win them over and make them buy something well a lot of times I like to take the step back say we're people I want to find that little way where I can connect with them on a different level that totally helps Mm. so some of my favorite ones is uh talking about something that they might have on the, like you say, if it's a retailer, they'll typically have minis or special bottles behind them, or they might have some posters nearby or a wine that is kind of funky, different. Something I can point to, talk to them about it, strike up a conversation that's not entirely focused on what I'm trying to sell to them. Sure. Uh, it's always better in, in this business to focus on the relationship aspect of the business. Right. So it's not purely a widgets and, you know, uh, P&E reports and all those kinds of things that you might get wrapped up by in for our corporate business. Instead, I can focus on the interpersonal aspects that will help demonstrate to them how much value we can bring in the personalities behind the brand. Right. And I'm sure obviously getting the product into their mouth is important. I mean, that's one of the things they say about, you know, food products is the best way to make somebody, the best way to get somebody to buy a food product is to get it in their, like get it physically in their mouth so they can taste it. And I think, you know, flavor is something that's really easy for human beings to bond over. Right. Um, so I think that's a really good tool for us. That's usually what I use. If, if people are confused, I usually just hand them a tasting spoon and say, let's go. A really good point there is just how it's less of a less of a hard, cold, calculated science and more of an art of conversation, of relationships and uh, kind of going off that art. I want to talk about a couple things here with you tonight. Um, one of them is kind of this imprecise art of blending which is why that can be very precise if you want it to be true true um but i think from from like a very like a uh, if you take several steps back it looks like it's this just genius art of like somebody who's like kind of a mastermind tinkering and and blending all these spirits in what we've got here in front of us which are called infinity bottles which is um something that i was very excited that you kind of brought up as a potential show topic so we'll definitely get to that but before we do um, you are extremely unique in that you're, you're extremely unique in that you've actually 
created a piece of art or a collection of art kind of inspired by your experience working with spirits and cocktails and all that. So I was wondering if you would be able to talk about your book. So in February of this year, I released, uh, you know, a self-published collection of poetry called Got About to Bound. It was <laughs> originally planned as a memoir. And so I wanted to kind of write about some some opinions, some anecdotes, all the different kind of, you know, some of these collected stories from different uh, encounters with retailers and bartenders and all of those fun experiences I've had. But as I began writing them, you know, I had collected lots of little notes and tidbits together. Well, as I tried to flesh those pieces out into um, larger works of prose, I found that uh, I didn't like the voice, uh, the, the tone of the writing. Nothing really was coming together for me where, where I was excited about it. And, you know, for me, in a lot of cases, if I can't be excited about it, then I'm not even going to be able to get it done, never mind trying to get someone else excited about it. And so when I look back through those notes, I started recognizing that some of those notes were little nuggets, little kernels of ideas that could be expounded upon in more artful terms. And so at that point, uh, I wrote the uh, titular work kind of on the fly, just, you know, jotting some things down and thinking about some stuff and wrote it down, kind of set it aside. And it was just something fun I did just for me and hadn't really given entire focus to the idea of it being a collection just yet. It was just something I wrote for me. Then as I started to look more into some of those pieces and thinking, okay, well, maybe instead of chapter headings, these are poem titles, or maybe instead of talking about this story specifically, I can talk about the story generically. And then I have something that once was supposed to be this drawn out anecdote talking about all the tasting experiences that I would go to do a trade show or whiskey event and I'm lining up bottles and tasting people on them. And sometimes I've been guests in some of these scenarios where I'm trying lots of wines or beers or something along those lines. Well, instead of making it this collection of anecdotes about those scenarios, I wrote one poem, uh, Drunk by a Thousand Cuts, mm-hmm. that spoke specifically to those trade show experiences or uh, thinking about particular bars and places that I had a great time and things about going out to bars that I really liked instead of focusing on it in terms of a piece of prose, uh, like a essay, I wrote different sonnets about the bars that I really enjoyed and try to focus on different aspects of attending bars, going to bars, being out nightlife that I felt stood out to me. Um, so for instance, I know one of the sonnets I wrote was uh, about Copycat, which is a wonderful cocktail bar here in the D.C. area on 8th Street, Northeast. And so part of the sonnet, yeah, if you look at the first portion, uh, the the octave uh, is going to be about the, the cocktails themselves, the 
the menu, the kind of ambiance of the place itself, and then the sestet, the turn, is going to talk about the proprietor, Devin Gong, who I really have a lot of respect for my very much. And so for me, it's looking at what makes these bars great. Is it the library of cocktail knowledge that they have at their disposal and the way they present that information? Or is it that mind behind it that pulled these elements together, which is the more important part of making that bar great? Yeah, that's really interesting. I First of all, Copycat gets a lot, a disproportionate amount of shout outs on this podcast. So another <laughs> shout out to Copycat. Well, I mean, I don't want to gas Devin up at all. I love him. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, maybe I should have brought up uh, RG Books Lounge in Cedar Rapids, Iowa, <laughs> as, <laughs> as the one instead. But that one, I know, meant a lot to him when I showed it to him. So that one also, you know, as a result, means a lot to me. Yeah, for sure. Um, one of the things I really like about this collection of poems is that it's very musical in the uh, forms that you've chosen for the poems. Uh, so in the introduction, you mentioned uh, people like Shel Silverstein, Edgar Allan Poe, and um, Langston Hughes, people who did a lot with sound. And, I, you know, so I, I think the musical quality of the collection was one of the first things that struck me. And the section where you're kind of going through these bars and you're writing these sonnets, which are love poems. Sonnets are love poems, first and foremost. And right. um, they're also love poems that take a very specific form. So one of the things I really like about writing in a form like that is that it, it, it's got a paradox in there. Um, you confine yourself to a rhyme scheme and a meter. Right. But then interestingly enough, that sort of frees you up. That, that constraint is almost freeing in a way, and it allows you to do a really good exploration of what's at the heart of the subject. So mm -hmm. maybe we'll take that as our central metaphor for today as, as we talk about the maybe the art, maybe the science of, uh, right. of these infinity bottles that we're going to get to in a second here. But um, I definitely wanted to give that, that work a shout out. And um, it is available on, on Amazon, uh, which is where I got it for sure. That's the platform I use to publish it. So that's the only place it's available gotcha. <laughs> is on Amazon, both in a hard copy paperback and uh, Kindle book. Fantastic. So folks definitely check out uh, that book. And before we move on, we should probably explain what a gadabout is because yeah. I had to look it up. Yeah. So it's a the kind of dictionary.com definition is a habitual pleasure seeker. Um, for me, I was basically looking at uh, synonyms for bon vivants because I like that term a lot, but of course it's already being used by some cocktail consultants and so kind of using it for myself was really wasn't really going to work either i was going to engender some confusion or or get myself sued so i figured if i find one that is a synonym that i can use and not really get myself into too much trouble for i would be glad to take an obscure word and claim it for myself rather than having to deal with that tangle of litigation that might right. ensue after trying to use someone else's term. Gotcha. Yeah, it's a great word. Uh, definitely a nice little plug to cocktails just filled with all these little obscure references and things and marginalia. And I feel like that's one of the things that cocktail people enjoy most is like a, the story behind this weird term or this weird ingredient. So definitely a fitting title for the book. Gadabout. 
abound, spelled just like it sounds. And that was a rhyme. That was, I mean, that's definitely part of the idea. Then I, <laughs> added, then I added one to the end. That's just like it sound. Yeah. I just wanted to just plug my own poetic ability there. But um, the topic of today's podcast is infinity bottles. And as when we were emailing before this, you were like, well, and, you know, I could talk about infinity bottles. And at first I was like, I didn't, I had no clue. So I, I looked them up and uh, it is a really interesting approach to um, potentially recycling, potentially repurposing, and putting a new face on something familiar, uh, be right. that being kind of like uh, some half-used bottles that you have lying around. So why don't you give folks an idea of what an infinity bottle is and how you make one? So the idea behind an infinity bottle is to take a a blend of several already final products and have a cascading almost Solera style method of blending uh, and to kind of add a little, I mean, of course I'm using a little something that's jargony as well, but Solera is a style of aging typically employed with cherry there where you're going to have uh, multiple vintages, multiple different expressions that are being aged together in a single vessel. And so the Finney bottle follows that same idea. It also alternatively is known as a Solera bottle. And so the idea is that you're taking portions of other products and combining them into a single vessel and allowing them to marry and age together and, and develop together as a, as a unit. Interesting. Yeah. So you're taking two separate but similar ingredients and essentially taking, uh, doing one, one plus one equals three. Right. Kind of. Precisely. Um, uh, the other kind of fun term is gestalt. So, you know, more than the sum of their parts. Gotcha. Gotcha. Yeah. Um, so the Solera method is interesting. And I know that there's, at least in the world of spirits, there's there are certain controversies around age statements. Because one of the right. things that obviously conveys the most flavor to a spirit is the conditions in which it's aged the the barrel and then obviously the external conditions like humidity temperature stuff like that potentially mechanical motion right and so generally the thought is the longer something ages and you can correct me if i'm wrong here uh the longer something ages like we'll take scotch for example the longer Mm -hmm. a scotch sits in a barrel the more the smoother it gets generally the more different kind of darker sometimes sweeter flavor notes it it picks up right and so that's why when you walk into the store and you see um a 12-year scotch and like a 18-year scotch the 18-year costs way more than the 12-year because of that both the time it's spent in the barrel but then also the perceived increase in quality right and so with these blended spirits that also contain age statements. Sometimes the math that goes yes. into that can get a little controversial. So we won't, we don't need to get into that here, but basically what we're talking about is a kind of like an at home version of a practice that has been used in many different spirits and distilling industries for a long time. Right. Right. So can you talk more about like the reason why you would blend spirits and like how these, uh, I guess, cellar masters or distillers go about blending things? So, you know, if you think about most spirits that you're going to see, 
you know, whether it's a scotch, a brandy, plenty of rums, if they're an aged spirit, they're typically not going to be the product of a single barrel. Um, if you see a single barrel whiskey, and it's marked as such on its label, that means it's the product of one barrel. And so you're not marrying any other barrels with that. You're taking the product of that barrel, getting it to proof, and then bottling it. For most other things that don't say that, you're dealing with, you know, dozens, hundreds even. And if you have a batch of that size, part of the idea is that you're going to employ different flavor profiles that each barrel is going to have. Um, some will have maybe a little bit more spiced notes. Some might have, you know, might be aged in different kinds of vessels. So you'll get some of the fun uh, dried fruit nuttiness of a sherry barrel some of that light sweet vanilla of a used bourbon barrel coming in from that American oak. You might have some French oak, which is going to have a lot more of that uh, spice character that's going to be incorporated from its, its, its higher tannins. If you have all those different kinds of oak, different things that have been aged in it before, the flavors are going to be different. And so to get a harmonious and consistent flavor, you're going to want to have those different elements incorporated at appropriate levels, and you want to be able to say, okay, my Balvenie Double Wood is going to taste like Balvenie Double Wood for years and years. You don't want it to be that someone that bought your product in 2012 and then comes back in 2015 doesn't recognize what they're tasting. And so to get that consistency, they're going to blend. And for cognacs, also really known for blending and far less having single barrels available. You're going to have things that are incorporating really, really old cognacs because they can add uh, more of uh, a body, more of a, a spice and a different kind of mouthfeel and character to that spirit at the end. And even though if it's maybe 40%, 80% four-year-old cognac, when you have some of that 30-year-old, 40-year-old cognac incorporated to it, some of those flavors are imparted. They're going to become a part of that spirit and add to the quality, the perceived quality of that blend at the end. Right. That's really, really interesting. Um, so you've mentioned a few specific spirits here. Are there certain spirits that lend themselves more to infinitying? So I would recommend avoid non-age spirits um typically those are going to be ones that you know think about a mezcal or a tequila or a vodka that hasn't seen any time in oak well part of what you're wanting to uh, take advantage of is the different styles of maturation the different things that have been they've been aged in different age of those products and how that all the characteristics of that maturation are going to show in your final blend. And so those unaged spirits typically or have different flavors for certain, but um, there are very limited times when I would recommend using them heavily in a blend just because they're not going to add the same depth of character to your blend on the other side. Uh, plenty of Scotch whiskeys are going to incorporate uh, neutral grain spirits or essentially, you know, uh, high proof vodka into their blend. And part of, that is what people perceive as inferior quality spirit because you're not going to have something that has the same character, the same depth of flavor. You're using something that is inherently flavorless. And so 
it adds to the proof, it kind of extends it, but it doesn't necessarily add the same kind of character that you might be looking for. Um, for ones that are already typically blended, uh, such as brandies, rums, and and uh, whiskeys, then those really lend themselves to it really, really well. Um, I think that's great about rum. Rum has a long history of being used in aftermarket purposes where they're already blending it. If you have a, uh, if you want to do a daiquiri or a zombie, and some of these particular rum cocktails, some of those rum cocktails are going to require a balance of different kinds of rums. They're going to have different flavors. If you're going for a uh, historically like a French Indies style Martinique rum agricole rum, you're going to have a lot more of a uh, like grassiness that you don't really get if you're looking at a funky estery Jamaican rum. Mm -hmm. Those characters are not going to really overlap at all. And so if you want to have a kind marriage of these two kinds of flavors, you want to have a, a balance between some of these notes that you won't find in the other examples of those spirits. You can take five different rums from five different islands, and they're all going to have very different kinds of flavors that are incorporated into them, even from the white rums. And so never mind when they're aging and they're, they're almost just going in further and further in different directions. Sure, sure. So you can bring them back together and take the elements that you really like from each of them and marry them into a, a fun blend or, you know, and as I do it, in an affinity bottle. Nice, yeah. I think tiki, the tiki example with the uh, the zombies is a great uh, example of this. And it's actually kind of like a deconstructed um, infinity bottle if you think about the recipe because most of the like some of those recipes where they call for multiple rums they'll actually kind of specify for you what right. the, what the proportion exactly. so they almost deconstruct it for you uh, and you were telling me before we started there's even some bars that have proprietary blends of rum actually I, I, they, I know not necessarily by name but uh, I'm certain that there are bars that don't name what they're using because they can't they're <laughs> they're already putting together several different things, and so it might just be a house blend of rums. Uh, good tiki bars are typically going to do that just as a matter of course. I mean, you know, if you're going to some place like Archipelago in D.C., they are going to put <laughs> put themselves to the ringer if they're having to do 10 touches on some of these cocktails. So it will be easier for them to already put together the rums that they know they want in a certain proportion for a certain cocktail. Right. Because each tiki cocktail is typically going to have a different level of light rums uh you might have ones that call for a more cuban style rum something that wants more of agriculture agricole style rum something else that want more jamaican style and so different cocktails are going to call for different types in different amounts different ages different proofs and so if you have a cocktail that's calling for an overproof rum a gold rum a white rum and an aged rum it, you you have a lot going on there right and so rather than trying to put your hand on each of these four bottles and bringing them in like you're making some kind of tiki Long Island iced tea and thinking they're going to be in the same proportions and they probably aren't. That, that's too much. If you have one bottle where you've already blended them, it saves you a lot of time and a lot of headache, yeah. especially for home par home bartending. If you're doing something at home, you're going to have a party, uh, set out some, some tiki bar outside and hang out with your friends out there. You don't necessarily want to be having five rum sitting there outside and trying to do three different tiki cocktails and having them blended all these different ways. And that, that's going to be a headache for you when you're trying to also host your guests. You're you're going to want to have something where it's easier, and in a lot of cases it'll be easier to 
already have that blend put together. Absolutely. And it seems like that's where some of the precision that you were mentioning earlier, it seems like that's where some of the precision can come from. Exactly. Um, That's really, really cool. So can we talk about some of the infinity bottles that we have right here in front of us? Because they are really cool. So I have four that I keep at my house now. There was a fun article on the online blog uh, website, Punch, that was talking about Infinity Bottles. And I'd already been doing one for Brandy, and I was considering doing one for Rum. And when I saw that, I said, well, I'm clearly not just a weirdo and trying to uh, copy off a friend. Like, this is clearly something that is recognized and accepted (laughs) amongst other people. So I'll definitely approach it more seriously now. Uh, And so I added the Rum one at that point. And in short order, added one for Amaro and for Rye Whiskey. Uh, being that I work for Cadoctin Creek, the way that I decided to approach my Rye Whiskey blend is to take our very limited Rabble Rouser expression. And for that Infinity uh, Bottle, there's a lot more precision than the other ones have had to date. Um, in all the other cases, it's a, how uh, about a little of this and maybe pour some of that. And, oh, I like this one a lot, so I'll pour a lot of this. Uh, For the Rabble Rouser one, I went for 200 milliliters of each expression. Uh, We've had a 2015, 2016, and now a 2017 release. Okay. So at this point, the Catoctin Creek Rye Infinity Bottle is all of our existing releases of Rabble Rouser blended together. Um, The... Brandy one, being that it's the one I've done the oldest, I have no idea what all has been in this one at this point. It started off with Hennessy XO. That was a a delightful wedding gift from the owners of the distillery. Uh, And the most recent addition was a single barrel Commandon Cognac that the retailer that I was pitching to that day happened to have on their shelves. I'd never heard of the Cognac house before. And so I was really intrigued. I looked it up while I was kind of uh, in between meetings and had a little moment. And then I decided, well, I really want to have this bottle, so I'm taking it home with me. And so it became a part of this this fun blend that I have. Really cool. Uh, I really like how the Rye Infinity Bottle has at this point become almost like a time capsule because you've got all three of them in there. And so it's like, you've got this, like, it's almost like you're drilling down into the ground and collecting that core sample, or you're going back through the rings of a tree and you're saying, well, that was there, that was there. Um, This is really cool to be able to track that progress through flavor. So that's that's really cool. So what are the other two that you have? So uh, for the rum one, I went (laughs) went all over the place. Uh, I am definitely a contrarian (laughs) in a lot of respects uh i typically don't keep much whiskey in my house though to most people i'm a whiskey guy because i work for a rye whiskey distillery but my first love was cognac and i have taken a very special liking to rum mostly because you can still get a really high quality rum at a reasonable price and so you can get uh beautiful 12 year old 15 year old expression of rum that is i mean in all fairness the age statements aren't necessarily as clean cut and dry as we would like to see them in american and scotch whiskey circles where the youngest part 
is the age statement. Right. This typically the oldest part is the age statement uh, or an average or whatever they felt like doing for that particular one. Right. Whatever math looked best on the label. Yeah. There, there's some 15 year old in here. So let's put 15 on the bottle. It's like, no, it was um, actually bottled by a 15 year old. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Some, something along those lines. So it's not as, uh, as strictly adhered to rules for rum, but still you can find great quality rums at 30, 40, $50. What are some brands that you like? So personal favorite rum is Barbancourt, eight-year-old. Uh, I really enjoyed the Pompero rum from uh, Venezuela. Uh, I love the Duquesne, Martinique rums, Flamont. Um, see, the Angostura rums are really, really great. And I definitely take to some local rums. So my friends at Lion Stilling in St. Michael's. And uh, we're going to have some uh, Mount Defiance rum. And I had some friends that were distilling rum in St. Lucia at one point. Definitely have theirs. Uh, Cotton and Reed in D.C. Well, they do a so good I have job, lots yeah. of lots of local friends who dabble in rum that are naturally going to be part of this bottling as well. Yeah, for sure. So a lot, a lot of good names in there. Uh, my personal favorite at the budget level is Mount Gay. Mount Gay Eclipse is, I feel like, the most consistently available bottle at a really accessible price point. And mm-hmm. then I think once you move past that price point, you're going to move into the, I feel like the Barbon Court is, is probably one of the most pervasive cocktail rums out right. there. I see that behind so many bars. Um, and I'm not as intimately familiar with the pro uh, the flavor profile on its own but i've had it in enough cocktails to be able to really um you know cling on to that as a, as a really good name so for for those of you who are out there who are maybe interested in figuring out where you're going to start your infinity bottle um you know those those two could be uh probably among the more accessible of the ones that we listed for sure absolutely um the barbon court eight-year-old is typically between 25 and 30 dollars on the shelf and so that's a really great place to start. Um, I typically like to start with a backbone of something that I really, really like when starting these Infinity Bottles. So having that Hennessy XO, of course, was a beautiful place to start from right. in the very beginning. Um, and I've had lots of really great cognacs that I've had over the years that have been incorporated into this Infinity Bottle. And then even fun things like I put a little uh, Laird's apple brandy in here, uh, some, uh, what's it? The Cardinal Mendoza Solera Grand Reserva Rana de Jerez. Something that's you know totally obscure, right. cherry aged, not something that people are going to necessarily gravitate towards when they're, when they're walking through the liquor store. But for me, something that is going to add a really unique character to my infinity bottle, at least for one period in time. Sure. You know, it might get overwhelmed by some of the newer things added later on, but at, at one point they'll definitely get a lot more of that sherry character because of its incorporation right and it does become kind of almost part of the dna of the of the of the liquid so that's yeah. pretty cool um what about the amaro so the the amaro one is definitely another case where i started with something that i loved but i also include something that i hate uh i do not really take to fernet personally um it's like someone put a menthol cigarette out on my tongue so it feels like a punishment um, mm-hmm. I, and I feel very strongly about punishing myself when I'm drinking. So at this point, I now refuse for net shots 
which I mean, I'm sure in some circles is heresy of the highest degree and probably is uh, deserving of some death penalty of some kind, but maybe, I, I maybe just, a second for net shot. <laughs> <laughs> that, that would be, that would be a fate worse than death. I have to live with that on my palate for a while. Uh, so it is just not something I really like, but uh, it's, it's almost like a spoonful of medicine. And so I did incorporate a little bit of it into my blend of Amaro uh, or of Amari. And it's, it's very I, dark. I was almost, I almost thought that it was a port, uh, port at first. It's yes, this, it is. It's jet dark. black is absolutely all the yeah. other ones. You can definitely see through. There's a l- little bit of, of translucence, but for the Amaro blend, it is totally opaque. You cannot. Yes. That looks even, like a giant inkwell. Exactly. It does. <laughs> um, and so for the part that is my love, the part that is the backbone for the Amaro blend is Averna. I've, I love blending uh, or, or cocktail mixing with Averna. And so that became uh, an easy one for me to rely on to make up the bulk of what I'm blending there. But naturally, I'm going to include some Don Ciccio Affili. They have some wonderful uh, Italian style spirits made right here in D.C., and so that was going to be a natural one to rely on. Um, and another one that I really enjoy drinking on its own is Amaro Nonina. Mm-hmm. So those are some major p- components. The uh, Della Seren from right. Don Ciccio yeah. with the Averna, the Fernet, and Amaro Nonino. Those really? are the primary wow. spirits. That's pretty cool. That blend. Yeah, definitely check out, folks, if you're interested in tomorrow, check out our uh, interview with Jonathan Fazzano from Don Ciccio. I believe it was episode 14 or 15, so check that out. Um, but Good friend. Yeah, he's a good guy, and that was a really, really fun episode as well. Um, I kind of suspected that when you brought Don Ciccio up, I, I, based on the color, I thought the Della Seren was the, the, the one that you used, and that's definitely, I think, my favorite product of theirs. It's just really... I think it is, and it's meant to be enchanting. Like yeah. it's got that kind of mesmerizing flavor profile. So very cool. Um, do I get to taste maybe one of these? I mean, we have tasting glass. I even have a dump glass, so you don't have to be wet into a to. big sip. But you can taste any of them, and even sometimes I am going to cocktail with them and do a Black Manhattan incorporating. Mm. Uh, either one of the base spirits and the Amaro blend or multiple base spirits and the Amaro blend. Wow. Um, but even though I put maybe, maybe 50 milliliters of Fernet in here, there's still an overwhelming Fernet influence. I keep trying to cut it back every time, add a little bit more of something else. Uh, last time I added to it, I put in more Nonino, <laughs> but that, Fernet still there is definitely a little bit more muted, but it, it sneaks in on you. Uh, any of these that you like to try, though, I mean, of course, I would highly recommend trying the Apple Rouser one. I mean, uh, yeah. Not only is the Apple Rouser very limited, but we don't do very much blending at Catoctin Creek. We typically are doing only single barrel expressions. And so to have a blend of the Apple Rouser expressions already is really special and unique and it's one of the things that i really looked forward to when i was considering doing this being able to have this fun different blend that no one else will ever see anywhere else right so i am gonna taste that right now i just poured myself a small 
a little taster you know, give it a little bit of air um can you talk a little bit about the rabble rouser uh in terms of proof aging um mash bill just stuff that our listeners might be interested in right so our rabble rouser rye is uh, typically a four-year-old expression this current year's expression was three years old but as with all of our rye whiskey it was 100 percent rye and it is bottled at 100 proof and so those first couple expressions essentially are following that same kind of bottled and bond uh, kind of rubric of four years old, 100 proof, still in the season, product one distillery. That's what we're looking forward to uh, kind of incorporating it as eventually, I would hope. Uh, I don't know. I'm not privy to all the secrets, uh, but that is the hope at one point to have a great bottled and bond expression of our of Becky's Amazing Rye. For sure. Yeah. Becky, uh, Becky Harris, really talented distiller for Catoctin Creek. Um, some of the tasting notes I'm getting. So when I smell it, it's actually very floral. Once you get past the, the booze burn, once it, once the, once the booze kind of evaporates right. off a little bit, uh, I'm getting a lot of floral notes, like almost like, a, like an orange blossom or a chamomile or something that's kind of got that soft. No, I want some. I don't, I mean, in all honesty, I don't know if I've tried it since i married them i maybe yeah. tried it soon thereafter but uh part of the beauty of the blending process is that these spirits don't necessarily age mature in the way that we think of it in the barrel but what they will do is join i mean they are solutions and so once you make one solution they will marry together and those flavors will change certain things will express themselves more other things that might have been more prominent in one are totally uh, subsumed by something else. So you will have a spirit that might, I mean, for the rabble rouser expression from last year, I would get lots of strawberry red vines initially, and then it would kind of blow off and I would have more kind of leather tobacco notes. And for uh, this year's expression, I typically would get, a little bit more of a kind of phenolic, a little bit more of a smokiness than I've seen some of the other ones. But some of these things are going to come and go and express themselves differently over time with water. Uh, when you first pour them from the glass, uh, once you're married together, all these things are going to change as a result of putting these spirits together. Yeah. So it's a really good way. Interestingly enough, I mean, so think about, think about this folks, you're, at home, you get into home bartending, you spend a couple months making some cocktails, and you pick up one or two bottles of like, you know, fairly, fairly high quality spirits. And as as tends to happen, when you get down to the bottom of these bottles, you kind of get attached to it, and you don't want to you don't want to completely use it up. And once you once you acquire a few of those, um, the infinity bottle gives you the opportunity to kind of put a new face on those spirits and give them a whole it's almost like a second life to these um you know these bottles that are that are almost on their last leg so um you know as you're hearing chad and i just had like a couple of very like you know very different you know flavor flavor tastings of the infinity version versus the individual years uh, bottlings of of the um of the rye so um it kind of just goes to show that once once a spirit's in a bottle, it doesn't mean that that's the last version of it you can get. You, there's there's so many ways to kind of repurpose and and uh, 
you know, do more fun things with it. So what are you getting? I'm definitely enjoying that, that kind of lingering rice spice. That's always one of my favorite parts, that kind of uh, pepper mm-hmm. and bit of cinnamon that comes in there. But I get some great grain character on on there. The, a lot of that kind of like straw. Yeah, like a sweet straw. Mm-hmm. Mm. And like a wildflower field. So that kind of floral character, the grassy character, that right. kind of uh, light, floral, grassy note uh, along with the pepper spice, the just, just like a hint of the like a like a butterscotch mm. kind of really early on. Like it's not like a heavy vanilla. Rich, right. But it's not yeah. lots of vanilla in there, but that kind of great heavy caramel kind of note that comes in really early on and then gives way to that that field kind yeah. of character and i don't I, I don't think that that's a uh flavor palette that most people expect out of something that is 50 percent alcohol and made out of a base grain that is kind of notorious for being a little bit rough around the edges um so i think that's kind of a cool testament to the to what's kind of going on there at the at catoctin creek yeah and you know for our normal round some rye expressions, I typically get so much fruit. But that's one of the fun things about the Rabble Rouser. A lot of that fruit is kind of gone. It's not something that we get too much of once it gets older. But we get a great depth of flavor that, I mean, it'll, it'll linger. <laughs> we can sit there with it and it'll stay on your palate. And it it has a great texture, even though... It's at 50% alcohol. Right. Yeah. And I, I was actually kind of surprised at that texture because right now I just took my first sip of the, uh, the cognac and I'm used to kind of cognacs being a little bit thicker and a little bit more syrupy than some of the rise in the whiskeys. But this is, this cognac is, is very light. And what, what, do, what do you, um, what do you usually get when you, when you taste this particular infinity bottle or, or this, this most recent iteration of the, the cognac? So part of what's going to come into what I'm using for the cognacs is a divorce from the larger houses that you're typically going to see gracing most liquor shelves. Remy Martin, uh, Hennessy, Gravassier, Martel, they make wonderful cognacs, but some of the things that they're doing to get a consistent blend when you're selling hundreds of thousands of bottles, uh, you're you're going to incorporate some caramel color. You're going to have uh, some other kind of, uh, the term that they typically use is bonificateur, pardon my terrible French, uh, but they are going to add different elements to have a consistency of the flavor and of the color and those elements typically will change the flavor and character of the cognac, however slightly. But for me, because I focus on a lot of things that are single barrel, very unique, uh, kind of trying to avoid some of those uh, additives in cognac, just so I have something where I can play with it on my own and have my handiwork come into what I'm tasting, unless so their handiwork. Right. So I'm blending, I'm trying to make something more akin to what they're going to have as their p- final product, 
because they're typically using things that are marriages of several casks, I'm going to have something that is easily more akin to what they're going to be starting with by using a lot of single barrel cognacs rather than having something where it is already a very finished product and, and already really refined and and brought into focus on a particular realm, I'm then going to be able to say, okay, I have this cognac that's a little bit older, this one that's a little bit younger, this one that's this kind of finish, this one that has that kind of finish. And so I have so many, I've had, <laughs> I have very few now, like maybe five, uh, but I've had some that are, you know, uh, Sauternes finished, and I've had some that are uh, finished in, like new barrels, uh, not not finished necessarily, but aged solely in a single new French oak cask. Some that are in older third use casks, and so I've had things that are very very different from one another. I've had some cask proof cognacs that I've worked with in my infinity bottle, so they are just so vastly different spirits that I can get to something that meets my tastes. Uh, a lot of times I'm leaving the toppers off of the decanters to allow to get more oxygen and help those spirits marry to one another. Uh, those kinds of little things, uh, little notes I've picked up from readings and discussions about blending to try to help bring those different flavors together. That's really interesting. It seems like it seems like variations on a theme is something that you can go for. You can kind of right. go for something that's very tight and very kind of carefully considered, and you draw a specific set of boundaries about, uh, around what you will or will not use. Or you can kind of do the opposite, and you can say, let's see what kind of unexpected stuff we can bring in here. And kind of instead of instead of drawing the the limiting boundaries, you can kind of throw the boundaries away altogether and say, let's let's go completely out of bounds on this and see what happens. So there's, it seems like there's a whole spectrum of ways you can approach it. And you also, thankfully, aren't married to whatever direction you're headed down. So <laughs> I remember at one point I put some things together and I kind of realized, oh, my God, this is not that good at all. <laughs> what, did I, what did I put in here that has ruined this? Was that the Amaro? Um, uh, wait. Which, Wh which one? Which one was? Oh, it? the brandy. Really? <laughs> Actually, for the brandy, at one point, uh, I don't even remember what I had added, but what was a bl nice blend when I started adding stuff to it became a blend I barely wanted to touch. Um, so I poured some of it off and <laughs> basically kind of wiped part of the chalkboard off, and they started writing over it again. And so I could pour off half of it. And so I'm still retaining some of the character of what was there before, but then I'm wiping away a lot of that with something else to try to bring it more into a realm where I'm happier. Yeah, that's great. It's such a good, flexible thing to do. And I feel like uh, listening to that, it's a great sort of permission for people who are listening to just go and, and experiment because that's one of the things we try and urge people to do on the show is like, listen, just do, just get a bottle and make a cocktail and right. like you'll, it, it's guess and check. There is a science to it. There are people like us who spend a lot of time agonizing over details in our daily <laughs> yeah, lives. Absolutely. Yeah. But that's so that people who are out at home can go and just have that permission to just kind of go crazy and explore. Um, so 
one of the things I'm noticing about this particular rum blend that is very intriguing to me is I th- I, it's it's very warm and butterscotchy, but it also I'm also kind of getting more of that spiciness to it. So I'm kind of curious if you right. incorporated some more of those kind of spicier styles in this iteration. Absolutely. I, I really like aged rum. Uh, I want things that have barrel character. Uh, as I mentioned before, unfortunately, it's not as cut and dry what they're adding, what they're not, what the age statements are, single barrel, all those kinds of things are not as transparent for a lot of rum. Uh, so I know that there are some of these rums that have sugar added, uh, other flavorings added, uh, but it was not going to be something I was really going to distress myself too much about trying to keep some kind of fidelity to an idea of uh, what I was doing, particularly with the brandies. Or, or you know, as I know, the the entirety of the provenance for the rye, uh, I don't entirely know all the provenance for the brandy, and I definitely don't for the rum. And so a lot of it is really, what do I have? What do I like? What do I want to see more flavors showing? Uh, what do I want to kind of take a back seat? And so a lot of that caramel, like, like I was saying, a lot of that uh, sugar is going to be added to the rums. And so that becomes a really prominent note in a lot of aged rums. And so as a result, a very prominent note in my rum infinity bottle. Gotcha. Gotcha. Well, I mean, we've been we've been really having a good time investigating these things here. Um, just some super cool flavor profiles. And it, I mean, if I were to taste one of these in a liquor store, I would just be like, this must be if, if it was like a blind tasting, I'd be like, this stuff is got to be over 100 bucks a bottle. Like with consistently with all these, if, if I were to taste the rye, it's a hundred dollar rye. The same with the cognac with the rum. Um, so it's it's a really cool um, kind of craftsmanship that you've developed here too. As you've practiced, I'm sure you've you know you you kind of talked <laughs> about your mistakes. <laughs> <laughs> so with those mistakes, you get better. Um, so I think you know it's such a cool thing to be able to to break out. Um, so definitely advocate people at home. If you're, if this is at all interesting to you, this is definitely all the permission you need to go out, buy a decanter. doesn't need to be fancy and, uh, start messing around. Um, so I do want to taste. None of mine are fancy. <laughs> yeah. Well, they, I mean, but they, they all look good. They all, they, they've got kind of like this unified theme and shape. Thank you. We're going to, I'll do a quick tasting of the, uh, Amaro here, the, which is, yes. The, the ink black <laughs> Amaro. Start to see a little bit of that color coming through when it's not yes. all together in in the decanter. Um, ooh, I do get a little bit of that menthol right off the right, right? off the bat from the. Uh, <laughs> and as I said, I tried to ooh. push it back a little bit. Well, this, the the Amaro della Seren from Don Chicho also has a, a decent amount of that right. that characteristic as well. Does that come from saffron? I'm actually smelling a lot of saffron in this, and I know that's a. a uh, key component of Fernet. I've, I've heard that they actually control a portion of like the world's uh, uh, trade of that particular spice. I admittedly have not looked too much into what botanicals Whoa. were incorporated to each of the different Amari I've been using for my Amaro uh, Infinity Bottle. I, like I said, typically was relying on 
I like this one. I like that one. I like this one a lot too. Um, I feel like I should have something for that in mind. <laughs> so <Yeah. laughs> uh, I wasn't really trying to go for, I didn't have a target in mind. I didn't have an idea in mind. I just knew that I enjoy tomorrow. I had several at home. And so when uh, I was actually gifted a decanter and I immediately thought, Ooh, I could put a Mara on this one. Yeah. Cause this, I had another one that seemed like a great opportunity to do that. I knew that Don Ciccio had done a really fun blend of several of their different uh, bitter spirits. And so the idea of a blended Amaro wasn't really that controversial. It wasn't something that no one had ever done before. So thinking of that, knowing that, I felt like I was within my rights to try it out myself. Absolutely. And I, I get a lot of great orange flavor in yes, that. Really good orange flavor. That actually surprised a, me. A lot of Nonino will add some great orange character. Yeah, for sure. Um, and then just kind of, you know, usually in, in, in some of the stronger Amari, you get that really bracing bitterness. But I think the orange really softens out the edges of, of what you've got here. It's really approachable in a way that I kind of wasn't expecting. I was kind of, I was expecting to be like greeted by, by the dog at the door and kind of like, <laughs> you know, uh, who are you? But no, it let me right in. That was a, that was a very, very lovely velvety uh, iteration. So very cool. Thank you. I'm glad you enjoyed them. Um, so you want to jump into a few quick lightning round questions here with me? Shoot. Cool. What is your favorite cocktail? If you can't name a single cocktail, what is a cocktail you've recently been obsessed with? This is super easy. Vucare. Done. Next. Vucare. Beautiful. What is your favorite spirit and what do you like about it? Cognac. History. Uh, you know, you go back and you look at how long people, I mean, of course, Armiac is older. I don't want to get into arguments about that. But the <laughs> the history of Cognac to me is really special. It's had a special place in our nation's history and the history of France. Uh, it's definitely... Uh, a different kind of international spirit. Uh, you know, the VSOP, VS, and XO age statements are a British creation. They categorized cognac for their consumption and their knowledge of what they were drinking. And so the idea that... Probably while simultaneously at war with the French. Quite possibly. <laughs> quite probably. <laughs> uh, but those kinds of things about the spirit, I think, are really special. And... For brandy in general, cognac um, specifically, but brandy in general, it's great to have a spirit where you have a substrate that is not, you know, uh, the the grapes are not going to be uh, the kind of sown in the beginning of the season and harvested at the end kind of thing. If you took vines, you took grafted vines and you planted them today, the best fruit isn't going to isn't even a decade away. You're going to need years and years and years to get good quality fruit off of those vines. And even still, you're going to have to plow hours and hours of labor into those vines to get good fruit out of them. And you get the good fruit and you still have to go and vent the wine. And so the, the kind of finesse and care and attention to detail that's required for cognac to get a good spear on the other side and admittedly, part of the reason why 
you have so many plans. <laughs> it's hard. Some years you have a great spirit, and sometimes you have a terrible spirit. And sometimes it takes 15 years for that spirit to become good. And all those kinds of things, you, you can't say every year I'm going to release my 12-year-old and put out a single-barrel vintage. That might not be something that's good at all. <laughs> and so you don't want to rely on those single barrels to mean to represent your entirety of the brand. It's just there's so much that goes into it, the history, the the agriculture, the maturation, the tradition, all of that makes it a really compelling spirit to me. Yeah, for sure. I, I mean, grapes are, I think, the pinnacle of terroir. They d- Grapes right. define terroir. You can get it in other things, certainly. You can uh, get agave it. definitely has a sense of terroir. Yeah, but for grapes, I mean, just one other observation I'd have on that is that a lot, of, a, a lot more recently – um, I've been speaking with people uh, like Carly Steiner of Mitsu, for example, who are talking about grape-based spirits or um, aguardientes or eau de vies that are not aged, and like 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 Pisco, like, Pisco, like Singani, mm-hmm. um, and so. I am not super familiar with those. I'm familiar enough with them. I've had them before. Um, but it's interesting that now people are starting to be able to appreciate the flavor and the value of even unaged grape spirits. So kind of a cool little trend. Um, I mean, I'm definitely one of those. If you go look in the Peruvian Pisco, uh, you can have ones that are aged in diff- made from different grapes, aged in different ways. Uh, you know I mean? The, the, the spirit itself won't be aged, but the way that they're making the wines uh, are going to be completely different depending on what style of pisco they're making. And so you'll have a uh, Mosa Verde that is nothing like the kind of common Cabronta kind of styles of pisco that you're going to try. And so, yeah, it goes in that same, I mean, like I said, brandy generally, cognac specifically, it's, that's my favorite. Yeah, there's a lot of different buckets, a lot of different squares, a rectangle. Rectangle is not right. necessarily a square type situations in the Calvados, world of spirits. That yeah. same world for me. Sure. All types of brandy. Love yeah. Them. Pisco, Zingani, all of it. Awesome. Great answer. Uh, my favorite question, if you could have a cocktail with anybody in the world, past or present, who would it be? Where would you go? What would you drink? And what would you talk about? So uh, I, I did kind of give us a little thought. Uh, one of the fun ones to me is Angel Mankin. Uh, I think he's known for his drinking, and being that he's a Baltimore man, figured we'd go somewhere in Baltimore. I'm not sure what places he would have been frequenting 100 years ago, but I figure something along the lines of a, uh, uh, a little corner bar like Idle Hour in Baltimore be a fun place. We don't have to yeah, have some fancy good. and ritzy place. We don't have to be somewhere like that. Just somewhere we can sit back and enjoy each other's company. And particularly because I'm a fan of Idle Hour, I'm going to drink something with some chartreuse. And so naturally, uh, Diamondback would be a great choice. Mm. Uh, it's a Baltimore cocktail. Really? After the Diamondback Terrapin. You know, uh, I should know that. Clear. I'm, <laughs> I'm a, I went to the University of Maryland. I should probably know this cocktail. What's in a, a Diamondback? Some beautiful things: uh, rye whiskey, apple brandy, chartreuse. Oh it's, man, it's a uh, uh, underutilized cocktail proportions: uh, three parts, two parts, one part. And so you get uh, some folks will use yellow chartreuse because, of course, it's a it's not as as a powerful punch on there. But I love having that that nice character of the green chartreuse coming through really clear, less of that honey. 
of the yellow mm -hmm. chartreuse and the apple brandy of course adds some some great character if you get a good one uh you know go rely on some calvados and then of course i love my rye whiskey so having that sit at the captain's share of that cocktail it's it's a really fun one Ugh, so it's three parts rye whiskey two parts i'm guessing apple well, brandy, brandy one, part one part of chartreuse, chartreuse uh yellow or green depending on your preferences yeah depending on what part of the diamond pattern uh, what color your turtle is i guess but uh geez that's i'm really surprised first of all that i have never heard of that cocktail i'd probably run across it before but for some reason it didn't stick out but uh i love chartreuse and i think you just described my the cocktail i'm gonna have when i get home tonight uh so that is that is really really cool um and we'll maybe we'll make that the featured cocktail of this episode that, that's a, that's a fun one for folks to try out especially since we're always talking about chartreuse. <laughs> um, fantastic. Are there any books about cocktails that are particularly influential to you? I am a big fan of Punch by David Wondrich. Uh, I, like I said before, um, when we were kind of getting set up, reading David Wondrich's columns in Esquire were really formative in my perceptions and my understandings of drink culture. And so... Having that book, I, I enjoy Imbibe, and it, of course, has a kind of cornerstone place in our modern conceptions of drinking. But when you look at the history of drinking, Punch has a really strong and powerful case for sitting at the captain's chair. Like it's, it was a big part of how we drank communally, and it wasn't necessarily that you would go to a bar and order one cocktail there would be the punch mm -hmm. that's there and made, whether it's a, a kind of ale flip or like a wassail or something like that that's served hot or some, you know, some of these newfangled things at that time, you know, some spices and some citrus that you might not have seen everywhere that now are being incorporated into these large communal bowls that are being doled out to the, the guests at the bar. The, that, that kind of history of how we consume punch, I think is really cool. And unfortunately, because of how history has played out, uh, a lot of those punches were brandy cocktails that were built for the masses. Brandy and rum are the fundamental building blocks for a lot of punches. Right. And so, uh, as I said, those are some of the first infinity bottles I started working with because those are spirits that I look at as uh, wonderful parts of the foundations for cocktailing in the modern times for sure i uh, can't i can't uh recommend punch enough fantastic book uh and he i've said this before but it bears emphasizing that wonder does a really good job um converting he does he's an expert researcher and he does a really good job converting old measures to conventional measures so right. he'll give the through, original through experimentation <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah yeah a lot of those recipes he knows what the proper proportions are because he did some version of it where it didn't turn out the way he wanted it to and so he doctored it till the the proportions and the balance came in and then he said okay this is the one i'm gonna work with right right so he's he's a really good scholar in that respect and the storytelling in those from his years at esquire to his experience with imbibe i feel like his storytelling is at its best in punch um definitely imbibes a fantastic book but punch is it's such a cool story and it really is kind of like the the accelerant of the cocktail movement you, you would never have if there was no punch we would not have cocktails um so very cool book um if you could give 
a piece of advice or maybe multiple pieces of advice to somebody who is just starting out on their journey as a, an at-home bartender, what would you advise them? It's advice that I've been seeing more and more in other circles, but I think it's sage advice, which is why I feel it's important to repeat. Focus on classics. Uh, there are, one for one, lots of proportions. I mean, a lot, a lot of that I rely on. Uh, whether you're talking about the 3 2 one who I think is really fun and underutilized, um, equal parts where it's one 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 like the Negroni or the Boulevardier, uh, the 2-1 with bitters like a Manhattan or a Martini, mm-hmm. or the uh, uh, like 3 one, one of maybe like a, a daiquiri or a sour. Mm-hmm. Those kinds of proportions can really make all the difference in your understanding of balance of flavor of what's going to work. And, you know, if you <laughs> get into your kitchen and you say, I have this and I have this and I have this, I'm going to blend them together some kind of way. Once you have a good understanding of the classics, it's, it's like cooking technique. If you know how to braise, if you know how to char, how to sear, how to boil properly. Uh, you, when you have those kind of basic techniques, when you know those classic proportions and how those classic cocktails are built, Uh, you know, understanding when to shake and when to stir. If you focus on those classics, you can learn all the basic elements of how to bartend properly. And so always study the classics, learn the classics, know the classics. Uh, Plenty of folks have their own takes, but uh, if you, even if you're looking at a couple different people's proportions for daiquiris, you're going to, you're going to understand what you like more. You're going to understand the flavors that you gravitate towards. And you're going to understand more and more about proper techniques. You know, I had a really interesting instance of that uh, a couple nights ago. Not a couple nights, a couple weeks ago. Um, I was with my wife and we recently picked up a bottle of uh, cognac that we, had, we, hadn't, been, we hadn't had it uh, for a which while. Which one? Uh, Maison Rouge, which is our go-to uh, base. Easy going. Yeah, yeah. Base, base cognac. Um, for mixing and so well she said oh well what do we make with this and I said well I mean easy answer sidecar and so she was she was making the drinks I was doing some work and she said well what are the proportions again and so I looked it up and I was looking at it because we hadn't made them in a while so I I just wanted to check because obviously when you're adding a lot of lemon juice to something you want to be sure (laughs) so I checked on the proportions and I was like it says this but personally, this is how I would do it. And then I was like, wait a minute. I, and so I had to stop what I was doing. And I did a little bit more research. And apparently there's like the London recipe and the Paris recipe of the sidecar. And right. whichever version was on the website was one of them. And then the way that I said to make it was the other city's recipe. Um, like exactly in the proportions that I told her. But I didn't. I didn't know that. I was just going based on what I thought would taste well in proportion to each other, each other. So mm-hmm. um, I think that's a really good testament to exactly what you're saying. So I think maybe what the homework should be, if you're listening to this, my homework to you this week would be select a cocktail, a few cocktails. If you're planning on having a cocktail or two this week, select cocktails that have different of those classic ratios, get a one to one to one in there, maybe a three to two to one. Uh, if you're going to make a punch, my classic punch ratio that that fail that is that is pretty uh, steadfast is 
fortitude to one to one water or tea to spirits to sugar and sour um so that's a good punch ratio um but yeah uh play around with different ratios and see if you can master those in a given drink maybe two or three drinks with those ratios and then as chad mentioned you'll probably find yourself one day with a bunch of random ingredients and you'll surprise yourself pleasantly just because of the skills you picked up so i think uh on that note with all of the blending advice that we've we've gotten tonight from these infinity bottles i will uh just give you the chance to tell people how to get in touch with you if they want to uh hit you up on social media so uh my my handle's a little bit funky um it's bebo ergo sum uh just a part of me and my eccentricities uh to spell that out that's b-i-b-o underscore e-r-g-o underscore s-u-m i drink therefore i am correct correct beautiful and if folks want to come out and visit you uh or maybe not you personally always but perhaps catoctin creek what's mm-hmm. the best way to visit catoctin creek so catoctin creek distillery is open six days a week tuesday through sunday and typically in the midday um we'll be open a little bit later friday saturday but come and come to the website catoctincreek.com uh, you can schedule a tour and tasting on the website directly and so you can have a a reservation set and you know when you're going to be slated to have your tasting pretty easy way to go about it very cool yeah very very nice tasting room and uh downtown purcellville in addition to being surrounded by beautiful farmland as you mm-hmm. mentioned uh downtown purcellville is just a cool place there's a couple good restaurants and it's a nice small town to, to walk around in and kind of stretch your legs quaint. yeah if you're a city slicker like like <laughs> us then you know it's, it's nice to be able to stretch your legs a little so um chad Thanks so much for being on the show. It was a sincere pleasure. Thank you, sir. Hey, everybody. Thanks for listening. I just want to remind you that this episode might be over, but the journey and the discussion are just beginning. If you're excited about the content in this or any other episode, please tell us. Follow us on Instagram at Modern Bar Cart for recipes and great product tips or stalk me personally at Quixologist. That's Q-U-I-X-ologist. You can also like us on Facebook by searching Modern Bar Cart or hit us up directly via email by sending a note to podcast at modernbarcart.com. That email address, by the way, is also the one that you should use if you've got any cocktail or home bartending related questions you'd like us to address, or if you think you have a unique perspective on the cocktail world and would like to be interviewed for all to hear. I'll see you next time, but until then, drink responsibly and experiment boldly.